Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Time for us to talk independent theatre, which makes a nice change from some of the the major shows that I've been talking about in recent weeks because of Rising. Currently showing at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre is a new production of Mother Courage and Her Children, the play by Bertolt Brecht. Just before uh, I introduce my guest, uh, who is its director, my traditional disclaimer whenever I talk about anything related to La Mama, yes, I'm the chair of the Committee of Management of La Mama, but it's a volunteer role and I don't benefit financially from promoting shows at La Mama. With that said and done and out of the way, and I'm sure regular listeners are sick of hearing me say it, but I kind of feel I should acknowledge it. Damien Miller is the director of Mother Courage and her children. He's also a playwright and a dramaturg and someone I've known for many years and many, haven't, many years, haven't caught up with for a while. So lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you here too on this lovely freezing morning. Uh, Melbourne in winter. It's actually one of my favourite times of year. There's something kind of about that being so alive in this kind of weather as you, I don't know, walk across the Carlton Gardens crunching through leaves to go and see a show at La Mama, for example. Absolutely. It's absolutely. life-affirming. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mother Courage and her children, not necessarily life affirming oh, <laughs> it it's it's a it's a tough story absolutely but but it's a story told with with a great amount of humor um, and absurdity and empathy um, things that that people uh, sometimes like to um, to imagine Brecht didn't have um, but but there's a great amount of heart in that play for my money it's probably um, uh, one of the the two or three best plays of the 20th century, um, an extraordinary cracking piece of work that that I saw when I was about 15, and I've kind of been chasing its effects ever since. Um, Let's talk about what the play is and the play itself. So, Mother Courage and, and her children. It is literally this is a play about Mother Courage, yep. who is a war profiteer, effectively yeah. low, quite low down the the ladder. She's not kind of like a a rich uh, billionaire corporate fat cat who is making millions by selling uh, weaponry, for example. Yeah, but she does she does sell bullets at different points in time and and there are moments in her journey where she is where she is uh, relatively really successful and when she gets successful, oh boy does it go to her head. Um, 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 yeah, this is the story of a of a woman who thinks she can profit uh, from war uh, without it costing her anything, um, but of course it ends up costing her her children's lives. It feels in many ways uh, a timeless play. I mean, this was written when Brecht had fled Nazi Germany and written, I understand, in something like a, a white-hot month uh, with very few kind of drafts, early drafts, redrafting. It just poured out of him. Uh, and so, yes, it's a, it's a, there's a lot that it's commenting on, but one of the things it is commenting on is the... Um, the toxic relationship between violence and capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the one of the tough things about this play, one of the one of the toughest things that it says is that is that uh, we 
we we exist in a perpetual state of war because war is a profit building enterprise. Um, war is something that that rests on competition. War is like a business. In fact, it is the greatest business of all. Um, when 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 I encounter a, a, a other works dealing with war, uh, you quite often encounter a, a critique of war that, that's based on, oh, the humanity lost, oh, sadness, oh, people suffer. Um, um, and, and all of that's, of course, true, but they never get into the roots of, of war. They never get to its economic guts. And this place speaks to, to how war feeds on itself, uh, how war perpetuates itself as a kind of uh, capitalist enterprise. Um, and that's still a kind of shocking thing for people to think about today. Why did you want to direct a production of this play now? You've said it's fascinated you since you were a teenager, yep. but why this play now? Um Couple of reasons. Couple of reasons. The 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 nice fun actor reason is Bagriana Popov was available, and there is no one better suited to play that role uh, than her. She's an extraordinary performer. Uh, she gives an extraordinary uh, performance in the play. Um, but the the big the big thing that 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 really drew me to looking at this play now is, well, we've just come out of our longest war, uh, our longest military engagement in Afghanistan, nearly 20 years. And this is a war that we, of course, lost. We lost it to the Taliban. And there's been bugger all reflection on why we entered the war in the first place, bugger all reflection about uh, what our contribution to that war meant, um, bugger all reflection about what our exit strategy was going to be, bugger all reflection, full stop. It's an extraordinary thing. We, we have a, a capacity in Australia to, to chuck uh, um, failure uh, into the memory hole and, and I wanted to kind of revisit uh, some of, the, the, some of the, the great questions surrounding our engagement in particular Afghanistan uh, with this play. I mean, it's also very timely because this is a nation that is spending half a billion dollars on an unneeded revamp of the Australian War Memorial yeah, in Canberra. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, money which could be spent on veterans' mental health exactly. and art and, programs to support yep. them, and so yep. much more. Yep. And uh, I've been, I've, you know, I, 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 I say that too as as someone who's been a fellow of the of of the the War Memorial. I was a researcher there for a while. Um, it's an extraordinarily important institution, but holy hell, we are just, you know, we're, we're, we're literally um, uh, creating buildings um, uh, the same way that we, we create physical theatres in this country but don't ever provide the companies, the resources, the people uh, to run them. Um, veterans get this nice schmick-looking uh, uh, redesign, but their lives are still appalling. And simultaneously, and I think it's very relevant, given Mother Courage and her children and its themes, 
the Australian War Memorial also is uh, accepting money from the war profiteers Absolutely. Lockheed Martin. Yeah. So again, exactly. that confluence of exactly. capitalism and violence is literally playing out in discourse in Canberra exactly. and being staged at the Lamama Courthouse in Carlton as commentary and criticism of that in a play by Bertolt Brecht, which is also kind of um, let's talk about. Brecht as a playwright and yep. the the thing that people think about Brecht, uh, epic theatre yep. and the idea of um, being alien, like deliberately alienating or distancing audiences. Why is that a central part of Brecht and how does it play out in this play? Well, I'll just sort of break down a little bit about what epic theatre um, means for Brecht. Um, um, it doesn't just mean long, although it's a big, long um, piece of work. I, I often compare it to, to King Lear in terms of its scale. Um, um, but, but by epic, he, he meant a kind of lumpy dramaturgy. So, so it's a play that lurches um, um, non-smoothly from comedy to tragedy to uh, moments of musical theatre. There's, there's, there's. Eight songs in the work uh, that uh, that uh, I've written an entirely new score for. Um, um, so it's a, it's a really bumpy ride, and and it's bumpy on purpose. It it's bumpy in order to draw attention to itself. Brecht is sometimes sort of talked about as if as if he wanted audiences to to not feel, as if he just wanted them to think. But but that's. That's that's absolute bullcrap. Um, what Brecht wanted to do was to have you both feel and think at the same time, and the audience interaction for this piece is kind of at the heart of it. We've we've just come out of of a few years of lockdown, and I'm still seeing pieces in theatre where the audience feel like they're a bit surplus to requirement. Um, one of the great things about this show is that the audience are at the heart of this show. They're talked to the entire way through. Um, there's no there's no horrible audience participation. I'm not I'm not going to terrify people with 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 that possibility. But but they're engaged. They're they're directly communicated with, um, and that makes that makes for a really powerful kind of. Ch- changing experience and Brecht Brecht always was trying to work towards change like and if you if you don't have if you don't have an emotional heart at the center of the work that reaches people well people aren't going to change how much of the play is by Brecht and how much is actually by Marguerite Stefan who is often overlooked uh, uh, in terms of her contribution to Brecht's work uh, this is this is one of the few plays where we can say that that Brecht wrote most of the work. Um, 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 she certainly she certainly did quite a bit of work on the English the first English adaptation um, uh, with the lyrics. Um, but this was this was this was a work that that Brecht wrote as a refugee away from his usual kind of factory environment of writers and collaborators um, um, and it's one of it's one of perhaps three works that that we can we can genuinely say <laughs> this is this is this is Bertolt Brecht mostly by himself okay now the production itself as you've mentioned uh, you've 
composed new music for it. Uh, I yeah. I read it described. Uh, I, sorry, I, I read a description of it somewhere that described it as Marxist Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the music. Um, when Brecht was 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 writing his work, uh, you know, along with his collaborators, um, the American musical was also being invented, sort of at roughly the same time, just in a different part of the world, and they share a lot in common. Um, um, the songs that Brecht wrote for uh, for his plays were meant to be really popular. He he was he was writing at a time when uh, when Schoenberg was really really important uh, when when serialism was really important when no melody was really really important um he scandalized a lot of people by by writing music for his plays that that was popular that had a melody um so we've kind of taken that on we don't do any um any sort of po-faced uh folk vile uh stuff um um, we've got an entirely new score, um, co-written by uh, myself and a um, and a former Sparky, Paul Duguid, um, and um, that kind of covers everything from Euro trash disco, Robin style works through to um, stuff that quotes Akadaka through to country and western. Um, we, we really try and lean into the bumpiness of the ride so that it's not, it's not this smooth, nice sort of um, um, shiny um, singular thing. It's something that's got spikes and, and bounces out at you. And the audience, like literally, we, we have, we have a, a large audience of young people for most shows and they scream, <laughs> which is kind of extraordinary. I've never seen that in a Brecht show before, but they scream. My partner said, is it that bad when I told him that? <laughs> so the play's on, it's on the VCE playlist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Which means your daytime sessions, which are selling out, are full of students who are studying yeah. the play. It must be kind of like, I'm, I just remember back to being in high school and the difference that reading a play text in a classroom and oh. trying to analyse it versus actually seeing it brought to life on stage by actors. What a difference that made. Yeah, it's such a huge difference. And, and, and particularly when they get to see, you know, people like themselves reflected back at them. Um, um, we've been sort of talking about um, about diversity in our um, in our arts companies for a long time, but but... We haven't really made huge strides in that direction, like honestly, even after sort of 20 years of talking about it. Um, this, show, this show has, you know, neurodivergent uh, performers, has disabled creators. It's, it's, it's got a big stonking range of people at its heart and it's got you know, a whole bunch of young people involved in it that that seem to well they seem to really directly connect with with the young audiences that are watching it um you know so it it creates this this really lovely small universe that that cast that we've got you know because we've got such experienced great players like Bagrian and Popov like Tom Considine you know these are these are these are people that have you know been walking the MTC floorboards for years and years and sweeping up um, uh, green room awards for years and we've got people that have never been on a public facing stage before in their lives. Does that present a challenge to you as a director to integrate 
the and, and to find an, an even level or a meeting point for the the different skill levels of the actors you're working with. Yeah, um, but but it's a really beautiful challenge to have. Like, um, um, like I, I'm I'm someone I. I I had the the good fortune of going through drama school. I went through NIDA. I taught at NIDA for for a good chunk of years. I know how fantastic it is uh, when you when you can work with um, fully trained actors all the time. But there is also something that gets lost if if we turn the arts into a bit of a middle class playground. Um, we kind of end up with with dull works, um, and so. So with this with this play um, with this company, uh, I've tried to be a hell of a lot more inclusive than um, than many of the other companies um, who are putting on works at the moment. Um, just because we wanted to reflect back to the audience a group of people that was a bit more like them. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Damien Miller, who's the director of a new production of Mother Courage and Her Children, the play by Bertolt Brecht, uh, on at the La Mama Courthouse. And I'll give all the dates and details shortly. But, Damien, just before we wrap up, we should acknowledge that you're working with a particular translation of the play yeah, by, right. by uh, the American playwright Tony Kushner. Yeah, now, holy hell. God, well, it's good. <laughs> why is this particular translation so good compared oh, well, to others that have been floating around over the years so many so many of the other ones that that we've received uh, have been written by british writers um, 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 and they all feel a bit po-faced a bit prissy um, um, uh, one of the things that i love about the kushner adaptation is that he understands brecht's love of language he understands that he can go from you know a, a bum and fart joke through to, you know, the highest metaphysical um, uh, comedy through to, to to something else entirely in, in one sentence. There's, there's, there's a glorious range of language in uh, Brecht's work. He was a poet just like Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the only other comparable playwright, in my opinion, to Brecht in terms of the range um, uh, of language, the range of poetry, um, um, and this is this is just an exciting translation that that captures all of that. And it sounds like an exciting production as well. Mother Courage and Her Children is showing now at La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton, until Sunday the 19th of June. So you've got a good chunk of time to see it. In my case, for example, Rising finishes on Sunday. I will then have a day off to rest and recover <laughs> and go out and start seeing independent theatre again. So Huzzah. to book to see Mother Courage and Her Children, which is on all this week and next week. Um, so running through until Sunday the 19th of June. Wednesdays and Thursdays at 6.30pm Fridays and Saturdays at 7.30pm Matinees also available as well Though Those have mostly booked out But you can jump online www.lamama.com.au Or you can pick up the phone right now And call 9347 6948. That's 93476948 or lamama.com.au to see Mother Courage and Her Children. I'm very much looking forward to getting along. Damien, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, Richard. Triple R. Often, 
the conversations on the, on this program are focused on arts events that are happening in Melbourne. But there's plenty of stuff that happens elsewhere in the country as well, elsewhere in the state, uh, including what we're going to talk about next, Under the Surface, which is a new visual arts trail in Gippsland. Joining me in the studio to tell us all about it is Belinda Collins, who's the creative director of The Social Crew, the, the kind of studio who have developed and presented this work. Belinda, Welcome back to Triple R. It was only about a month ago you were in talking about a, a state government sponsored event. I was a bit different this one. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So this one is a bit different because it's driven and created by by you and your team. Now, the notion of art trails definitely something that seems to have caught on in recent years. We've seen silo art trails, for example, across the areas like the Wimmera. Um, what's the point of an art trail? Is it just a tourist event? Is it more focused on connecting with local artists and engaging them in a in a broader collective effort, or is it a bit of a combination of the two? I think in general it's a combination of the two. Um, I think you know any sort of art trial you're you're wanting to show people and showcase different spaces and places, but also um, particularly with this project we wanted to reflect the environment around it. So in a way, I think you're you know, kind of enticing people to, to see new things and new spaces, but also um, encouraging a story as well. So in this case, you're enticing people, whether from Melbourne or from elsewhere, to visit the, the East Gippsland Rail Trail, which follows the old train line, uh, closed down, I think, under the Kennett government back in the 90s. Um, possibly earlier, I could be wrong. It's, that just may be my kind of... Uh, hangover of hatred towards Jeff Kennett. But um, anyway, uh, going back to the trail itself. So the train used to run from Bairnsdale to Orbost, has now been re- replaced by buses uh, as, as with kind of a lot of train lines around the, the state and around the country. But so now it's a cycling path, which you've ridden yourself. I've ridden part of it. I, um, I did a return journey from Bairnsdale to Bruthen. And um, let me tell you, <laughs> I probably won't do the return again. But um, it's a beautiful trail and it goes through um, all sorts of different landscapes. So it passes through farmlands across a variety of different rivers and waterways, which that region is renowned for, and then also crosses through almost um, kind of like rainforesty, deep forest trees, and then ends in Orbost at the edge of the Snowy River. So it's beautiful. And I would imagine, I mean, that given that it is the old rail trail, that there'd be some quite deep cuttings, quite dramatic shifts in scenery and so forth. There are. I mean, the the first leg which I rode um, is a little easier (laughs) to ride. So I won't say I'm a cheat, but I definitely took an easy way out. Um, And when I was riding that, I just was, you know, I've, I've actually grew up in Gippsland in a different area, but... It just really made me um, kind of just reflect a little bit more on the environment and the, the, I guess the diversity of it in that region. I have to ask, I'm also an ex-Gippsland boy, so, uh, well, uh, an ex-Gippslander. Where did, which part of Gippsland did you grow up in? Morwell, Latrobe Valley. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, similarly, Latrobe Valley, but also kind of uh, towards um, uh, the other side of the of the valley, so both the Stresleckies, but also kind of uh, Tangil South, oh, and yeah, Yalon right, North, and Yes. Elsewhere as well. So, okay, so we we have some some common ground there. But <laughs> in terms of 
So you've been you rode this bicycle trail. Why then try to connect artists uh, and create an art trail? Why? And I, I guess this is a bit of a devil's advocate question. Why kind of why hasn't this been developed organically by the artists themselves in the region? Why was it necessary for you to come in and just be a catalyst? Yeah, I think opportunity and and I guess you know my skills are obviously I'm an event producer and we create ideas and and help curate different things and one of the things was actually born um during lockdown where I was on a ride with a girlfriend of mine who was living in Jindabyne and we met in East Gippsland so we could see each other and um rode the trail and then I guess through that obviously working in the industry running my own business we were trying to think of different ideas and things that we could do that brought attention to the region also after the bushfires um and wanted to do something different and use my skills and and a way that I can give something back to the region by, I guess, presenting an idea um, and and really very detailed, like, on-the-ground conversations with all of the community. I actually went from Bairnsdale to Mallacoota originally um, and just learning what people were looking for. And a lot of the conversations there that you were having included uh, the Gurnai Kurnai community. Absolutely, yes. They lead the story of the artworks. Um, really important for me, I guess, growing up in, in a region, um, you know, in Morwell, there's a really large Aboriginal community and I wanted to make sure that if we were going to do something on uh, Gunai Kurnai country or on the lands that talked about or, or presented the artworks in a way that reflects the nature, that it should really be driven by the story of the Gunai Kurnai community. So how to, tell us a, a bit more about that process. How, the, how did sure. you develop those conversations, make sure that they were respectful, that people were being listened to rather well, than dictating what was happening? Well, I listened. I think that's the thing. I had a very raw concept which was essentially turning um, structures into painted objects um, along the way and trying to make it unique so it was a little different to the usual um, painting of murals on walls. Um, but then by doing so in obscure places, bringing attention to the stories, so all of the artists that actually um, produce works, all of their work reflects um, nature and environment. So there's a common thread in that in the first instance. But I also um, spoke with Gunnar Kurnai, Alice Pepper, who's the head of arts and culture. There is also an artist herself. Um, they've got a beautiful uh, facility in Kalimna, and I went down and met with Alice and just talked to her through the idea. She was super excited and wanted to know how to be given the opportunity to produce artwork that reflects the local story, I think for her was really exciting. But also by bringing some artists from Melbourne to learn the story before they painted and share skills to upscale and things like that, that... That's what really helped. So, in some ways, it's a uh, it's an artistic and cultural meeting of country and city artists from different places coming together, sharing, learning, and then creating artwork. That's right. Shared stories, really, from different perspectives and different learnings. I, it was really important for me to have um, anyone visiting uh, Gunnar Kurnai country. To we did a um, cultural program before anything happened. Um, so the learnings of uh, the local Gunnai. Kurnai story um, and the, the male and female creators um, in Burren and Tuck, like we needed to know that first. Um, and we sat through all sorts of different programming, learnt different techniques um, and generally just shared stories. 
So the art trail has now been, com been completed. So if people are riding that trail, they can see artworks at various points along the way. Tell us about some of the artists involved and the artworks they've created. Sure. So this is a pilot project. So it's a small, um, I guess, an introduction into these works. We're hoping to expand it. But essentially, um, there's a couple of existing works along the trail um, by some local artists and then we've complemented those with um, another group of artists uh, in local artist Alice Pepper who I mentioned, um, Patricia Pittman who's um, from Ewan Nation actually but she lives in Bairnsdale on Gunnarkona and has done for a long time. Um, also visiting artists in David Meg's Hook um, and Minna Lunick and also another artist called Ling. Um, they're along the trail at Nicholson, uh, they're at Nowa Nowa uh, toastery which is on the trail at Patelli's Crossing um, and Orbost at the Butter Factory. So they're all completely different things from bridges to passes to massive factories. <laughs> and as you say uh, that is a point of difference for the trail then because right. it's not uh, just your standard uh, giant mural on the side of a, of a silo or on the side of a housing commission flat such as in Collingwood. Uh, mm. It's Adapting the adapting and responding to the built environment and creating artworks upon it. That's right, and the idea is that under each artwork, obviously, there's a story under the surface. So each of them reflect um, the environment. For example, Patricia's is, is across the bridge, the start of the bridge at Nicholson River. So it has lots of references to the fish um, and all sorts of natural um, totems across that space. Uh, same with uh, Now and Our Bridges, the collaborative works between Megs and Alice Pepper. It's absolutely beautiful, a 30-metre tunnel. Not an easy one, <laughs> but it tells such a beautiful story of the Now and Our community as well. You mentioned that uh, you see this as a pilot program, so yes. hoping then I would imagine to expand bring in more artists, more artworks and more locations along the trail? Absolutely. We, we hope to um, continue, well, we will continue to work with Gunnar Kurnai um, on this project. The response from the community has been incredible. Um, I think everyone's really excited to see something different but also learn. There's an audio experience as part of this that we're recording at the moment so when people do arrive on site they can hear from the artist's own voice their story behind the works um, in a perfect world um, provided we can we can attract more interest and some funding we'll be expanding the trail all the way to the border um, and then hopefully across the regions many trails because there's so many beautiful spaces to see if people want to cycle the East Gippsland Rail Trail from Bairnsdale to Orbost, uh, how do they go about learning more about both the trail but also the art trail that we're talking about? That's right. Well, the East Gippsland Rail Trail is run by an incredible, um, lovely group of volunteers and they've got their own website, which is exactly that, East Gippsland Rail Trail. Um, and then for the sites, um, just ch check out our website, which has got a little bit of information on it there around the artist's practice and how um, their message in their in their works. A couple of tease, tease images too. Uh, and that website is www.thesocialcrewevents.com forward slash projects, hashtag forward slash under the surface. But if you just go to thesocialcrewevents.com, click on the projects tab, you'll find information about under the surface the Visual Art Rail Trail and some other projects that uh, Belinda and her team have been involved with. Belinda, thanks for coming in. You're and welcome. I uh, look forward to hearing how this project grows and connects other towns and other communities in Gippsland. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. There's still more to talk about because Rising, Melbourne's Winter Arts Festival, is in full swing until this Sunday, the 12th of June. One of the hotly anticipated works in the program is created by Anna Brecken and Nat Randall. It's called Set Piece and, like a lot of their work, is placed somewhere that film and video and live performance and queer politics meet and kind of flirt and get drunk together, possibly do drugs. Um, It's where all those things overlap. And I'm joined on the line by Nat Randall to tell us a little bit more about Set Piece, the new work. Nat, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So this is, on one level, uh, it's a theatre work incorporating filmic elements, exploring uh, a lesbian dinner party, but it's a lot more as well. Tell us, in your own words, kind of what you and Anna set out to create when you began the process of devising set piece. Yeah, we... um, really interested in in exploring, I guess, lesbian dynamics, but not necessarily so much about representation, sort of trying to um, unpack, I guess, maybe a a new form um, that sort of sits, as you say, somewhere between uh, theatre and and film. And so, you know, through processes of extended improvisation, digging through, I guess, historical texts that deal with um, lesbian representation, so film and, and literature. We were particularly interested in, I guess, the, the trash uh, literature of lesbian pulp fiction of the, the 50s and 60s and piecing that, stitching that all together um, in, a, in, a, in a way that sort of, um, I guess, allows for a different... Uh, feeling in the theatre, so trying to, I guess, express um, a lower level of of feeling, of of intimacy that perhaps um, is not um, uh, able to be achieved, I guess, without the camera um, in in a theatre context. So really looking at intimacy and proximity rather than, I guess, amplification um, within a theatre space. So um, as you say, it's, it's... it's based around not so much a dinner party. It's more of the um, end of the night dregs, we like to say, like the liminal space between sort of, you know, the end of the night but before you go to bed, what the, what the potential um, is of that space. So we're sort of dealing in, um, yeah, in that in real time, uh, that sort of section of the night um, between four women. Now... I want to come back to that aspect of the production in a moment in terms of its its setting and and what it is saying. But to unpack a little bit that notion of a work that sits uh, somewhere between film and theatre and that draws upon elements of both. And obviously this is a devil's advocate question. I haven't seen the work yet. But talk to us about the risks entailed uh, at working kind of at that point in, in the arts because there's the chance that you could lose the things that are special and unique to theatre or special and unique to film and television by trying to bring them together in a way. Yeah, no, that's... And that's the that's that difficult balance, you know, and we, I guess, in a way, we're 
we're inserting, I guess, cinematic conventions um, that are changing theatrical conventions. So the shape of the show is organised, you know, through particular uses of space and time, um, you know, scene changes, cutting into space, extending time or compressing time. Um, so, you know, in many ways... Um, you always have to think of the live moment, but we're trying to work out a way, you know, how to change that live moment through the use of, um, I guess, you know, the camera, the close-up, and how that can affect time or how that can extend time. In many ways, you know, that also affects the um, the style of the performance, That I guess the tone of the performance piece. So what we're dealing with, I guess, is... Um, technology that assists in that so you know microphones um obviously I've, I've talked about the cameras but how can we achieve i guess a, a style that is not necessarily theatrical although it is still you know it does it is it is pleasurable to watch it is you know blocked in a particular way um but how can we honor i guess those, those cinematic um decisions um within a in a theater space so as I mentioned, performance style changes, you know, an object in the space is sort of as um, prominent as, you know, striding across from the corner of the room. So a, a wink or a yawn is as significant as, a, you know, someone running around the space. So dealing um, with, I guess, uh, de-hierarching, you know, uh, what what, I guess, you know, uh, conventional theatre um, might, you know, um, centre dramatic stakes, tensions. Um, yeah, how can we sort of um, achieve that uh, with um, with the camera as well? So it is a, it's a balance. Now, in terms of playing with time, that's certainly something that interests me. And I read a, uh, a glowing review uh, from Cassie Tung of uh, the Sydney season of Set Piece, where she referenced the the the, uh, the looping nature of the the production and what we can call, uh, for want of a better word, it's plot, perhaps. But then that also echoes that notion of of loops and playing with time. Echoes uh, an earlier work that you and Anna created, which cr the critically acclaimed uh, rave reviews uh, work, The Second Woman, which was a 24-hour performance, which looped the same sequence of events over and over again, uh, but with a 100 different other performers coming in as it played out. Why is time and repeating and slowing down and looping time such a, uh, a fascination for, for you and Anna Brecken? Yeah, I guess in 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 many ways um, we're very much interested um, in performance and, and performance in general. And I think you know through through loops, through repetition, um, through introducing different variables, what we're really trying to achieve is a is a sense of of liveness. Um, so that that feeling, you know, I think many people have gone to the theatre and and perhaps, you know, the, the show started and it almost feels dead in a way. So we're always trying to, I guess, inject um, a sort of unknown or a, a variable or switching up, um, uh, yeah, switching things up so that the audience um, has a very different experience. And with this, um, you know, there is a kind of loop quality, there is a repetition quality. It's not as um, sort of... Uh, 
not a tight unit like the second woman was. Um, we're sort of interested in exploring, you know, different actors um, taking on different lines, um, you know, different um, blocking within the space, um, all to, I guess, achieve this um, sort of sense of liveness and experience, um, yeah, the nuance um, of of feeling in a very different way that isn't um, pushed to a, a kind of theatrical dramatic level, but that just um, floats um, for an audience to kind of read different things into the narrative or read different things into this um, theatrical experience. As you say, it's not a tight unit, it's a loose unit in a way, certainly in terms of the, <laughs> the set and setting and staging, the idea of that kind of loose late night, the party is almost over but we don't want to go home, kind of conversations and flirtations and more. Let's centre in for a moment on that aspect of the production. You talked about 1950s uh, lesbian pulp fiction, for example, example. Uh, talk to us about some of the, I guess, the, the tropes that you wanted to explore and challenge and, uh, and dissect in that aspect of the production. Yeah, we were, we're really fascinated with, I guess, different lesbian archetypes that have been, I guess, um, represented throughout, you know, cinema and um, literature and, um, you know, we're, and as well as this idea of um, these sorts of, um, uh, I guess, addictive, you know, um, loops and ad ad addictive kind of behaviours. You know, there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of um, talking, there's a lot of uh, edging, if you will, <laughs> um, and flirtation, as you mentioned before. And so it's sort of, um, yeah, I guess what it's, what it's uh, doing is also representing the ways in which we, um, you know, experience time with our, uh, with our friends. You know, you, you often have um, the same conversations. You often arrive at the same place. Have I said that before? Am I, you know, am I tripping or, am, you know? Um, so we're, we're playing with that and injecting, I guess, these, as I mentioned, sort of trash um, lesbian pulp um, fiction specific citations, different um, uh, different lines, different uh, dynamics um, and, uh, you know, exploring these through, I guess, um, inter intergenerational coupledom and that's, that's a very key, uh, I guess, lesbian fantasy um, that is, you know, the, the teacher, student, the mentor, mentee. So we have in the space, we have two couples separated generationally and, and what we experience over the sort of 70-minute period is, I guess, these different um, erotic dynamics, um, both spatially and through um, the cinema, the, the live feed um, across, across that 70 minutes. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Nat Randall about the work set piece that's being presented as part of Rising at the Meat Market in Blackwood Street, North Melbourne, uh, from this Friday, the 10th of June, through until Sunday, the 12th of June. It is a short season, like many uh, festival shows often are, so if you're intrigued and you haven't booked already, I strongly recommend you do. Now, in terms of the technical challenges of creating and presenting a work like this, talk to us about that a little bit because 
it's a show in which the audience are simultaneously watching live performance unfold in front of them and also looking at screens showing different aspects of the live performance and giving different emphasis to that. Uh, it strikes me as the kind of show where everything could go horribly wrong if, a, if the technology stuffs up, as indeed happened to me when I went up to Sydney to see the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, that production ground to a halt three times because they kept losing the live video feed, for example, which was essential to the work. So what are the technical challenges of creating and presenting a work like this? Yeah, I guess, isn't that... That's, that's the... Um, <laughs> that's almost the other player in, in the space. You know, you've got all these um, live bodies. Um, but as soon as you introduce, you know, anything technical and then other bodies controlling those um, technical decisions, um, you know, I guess, um, yeah, it's it's a challenge and, you know, there are... I think the most difficult thing and, you know, it, it, no one's doing anything new introducing video or film to theatre or performance. It's been around... For years and years, and I guess since since people were able to get um, yeah were were able to access affordable you know camera equipment, um, it's been around, and so you know it's interesting as technology develops um, and that has become more affordable. It's it is actually possible to get and achieve cinematic qualities. I guess the biggest thing is um, for us, and the most difficult challenge is the lighting. Um, and um, as I mentioned before, Anna couldn't join us because the the lighting plot um, is uh, so specific because, of course, it has to look beautiful and wonderful in, in the live moment, but it also has to work for the cameras. And so um, allowing the actors to have that freedom and flexibility but to also hit those <laughs> very um, specific marks um, is is the balance. I mean, there's always a risk introducing heaps of technology, um, but, you know, it's <laughs> it's live. Things happen, but, um, yeah, uh, we'll just, we'll, we just have to, to roll with it. But we're, yeah, we're feeling... Um, we're feeling confident and um, we have done this this once before, so we're, we're very ready and um, excited to present it um, for Rising. Set Piece is on from Friday through until Sunday at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. Tickets 45 to 50 bucks plus booking fee and you can book by going to rising.melbourne to see the work. I'm seeing it I think on either Friday or Saturday night and am very intrigued oh, and really anticipating what I'm going to experience and explore. Nat Randall, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Set Piece, as I said, part of Rising. Jump online, rising.melbourne for booking details. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks, Richard. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 